Amen. Thank you, Dan. Well, if you have your copy of God's Word and would like to open not to Psalm, not to the Psalm 86, but to Micah chapter 7, we are in our second to last, uh, second to last study in, in, that, uh, in that book. And as you turn there, I want to ask us a question. And that is, how should we respond when God allows us to encounter suffering? How should we respond when the things around us are so disordered that it makes it seem like God's not there? I, I know that none of us really like suffering, but it's a reality that all of us have to deal with from time to time. Whether it's death, the death of a loved one, whether it's disease, that thing that, that constantly attacks our bodies, or whether it's disordered circumstances or any other environment in which we suffer, suffering seems to demand a response. Suffering demands that we do something, that we learn something, that we grow in the midst of whatever that circumstance is. And I think one of the beautiful things about Scripture, one of the things that I love that God has given us in His Word is that we have grand examples of suffering and examples of how to traverse life's challenges and still flourish. And one of the good resources that God gives us in Scripture is something called lament. We see examples of lament in so many books of the Bible. If you're familiar with the book of Job, it's this glorious narrative poem about a man who ex experienced extreme suffering. He lost his family. He lost his health. He lost his wealth. He lost everything and cried out before the Lord. We can see in the Psalms, even in the Psalm that Dan read a few moments ago, that the Psalms give us examples of people crying out to God and saying, God, this is not right and good. Do something, please. We see it in the Gospels, even with Jesus Christ as he, as he was there in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will but yours be done. This is painful as he sweated drops of blood. And then on the cross as he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We see it throughout many of the prophets. In fact, there's even an entire book called Lamentations. And we even see it, I bring that up because we see it here in the book of Micah. Here in this closing chapter of Micah's book, he laments over the condition of his people. He laments over Israel and Judah. And I think one of the things that we can see, and this is kind of how, how the outline is structured, is that Micah's words here help us to see that lament is real and right. He helps us to see that there are good reasons that we should lament. And that there is a resolve that we can have in the midst of our lament. So let's begin. If you want to take notes in the outline, you can do that. Um, let's begin by considering the reality and the rightness of lament. You see, in our society, we, we celebrate polish. I don't know if you've ever watched TED Talks, but I occasionally will love those things. You know, they put someone on a red dot on a big stage, and they have to stand up there, and they're talking without things, and they're very polished. They're talking without notes, and they're communicating something in a very engaging way, and we like that. 
We're so used to seeing professional polish in, in people who, 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 are, who are saying things from stages, unlike how polished I am not being right now. But the way that people say things on the TV, the way that we hear them on the radio, it has to be exactly right. And it seems like in our society, the last thing that we want to do is lament. Because in lament, there is this sense of being out of control. There's a sense of being at our wit's end. Which begs the question, what is lament? One of the commentators I looked at, a guy named Stephen Um, defines lament as a passionate expression of grief and sorrow. Mark Vrogop, a pastor in Indianapolis, calls lament a prayer in pain that leads to trust. Biblical lament is more than just a verbal or prayerful complaint. It's more than whining, God, I don't like this. It's more than that. But it surely isn't less. Lament is a means by which we can respond to situations around us that are distorted from the way that they should be. Even as I said before, things like the death of a loved one, things like infertility, things like the loss of a friend, declining moral values in our culture, corruption in all levels of society, war, sickness, sin. Micah, along with several other writers in Scripture, help us to see that lament is real and right. And so Micah, in chapter 7, verse 1, begins his lament in this way. He says, Woe is me! For I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered and when grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. As we've seen over the last several months studying the book of Micah, we've seen that Micah has been called to the difficult task of pointing out the sin that is in his nation, the sin that, that his people exhibit. He's been calling them to repentance and warning them of the coming discipline from the Lord. And yet as Micah looks back over all that he's encountered, as he thinks about all the things he said and he's looked at the way that the nation hasn't responded with godly repentance, it's as though he's at his wit's end, as though he's at the end of himself, kind of like a, a, a completely barren vine of fruit. There's nothing there with which to provide any sustenance or relief. He's worn out, he's burnt out, and he's exhausted. And he cries, woe is me, because he has reached his limit. There's no more that he can do except to lament, except to cry out and say, God, this isn't what was supposed to be. But I think in addition to revealing the reality and rightness of lament, Micah helps us learn several reasons that we can lament. Are there good reasons to lament? Are there bad reasons? I'm sure there's both. But in this chapter, Micah notes several very public reasons that we can lament, several public reasons why he laments. In fact, Stephen Um, again, that commentator, notes that these things have the, all these laments have two things in common. One is that they are about the good of others. And the second is that they're all about the glory of God. 
There's something in these laments, something in the society that is no longer for the good of others and no longer for the glory of God. And so we see several things that Micah notices. First of all, that the righteous have vanished. The righteous have simply gone. The people who should be standing upright are no longer there. Look at verse 2. He says, the godly has perished from the earth. There is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each one hunts the other with a net. See, as Micah looks at his society, this nation that was called out by God to be a people that were distinct and different from among the nations at that time, he perceives that the godly and the upright have simply vanished. They've simply gone away. The righteous are no longer living rightly, and rather than serving the good of humanity, they're serving themselves, as we've discussed before, and they're taking advantage of the weak and vulnerable. In fact, even in Micah's words there, it's almost as though they're hunting for, for someone else to, as if to devour them. And he's not talking about cannibalism. But these people have fallen so far. The Apostle Paul summarized the reality of all humanity in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 12 by stating that none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worth, worthless. No one does good, not even one. And that's what Micah sees. That's what Micah's looking at in his society. It's, like it's, there's, it's as though they, nobody wants to believe in God. And I think it's one thing for us to look at all of humanity as Paul did and observe that no one does anything right apart from God's grace. But then it's another thing to be able to look at God's people. It'd be another thing as if to look inside the church and say, these people look worse than the people outside the church. And that's what Micah sees. When God's people are forsaking God's values that leaves a void of goodness in society, that is without replacement. And while Micah observes that the godly have gone, he also notices that the leaders are corrupt. The people at the very top, the people who should be models of what the society stands up for, are not living up to that. It's as though there's a double standard. And instead of demonstrating justice and right living, they're demonstrating corruption and wickedness. Look at verses 3 and 4 of Micah 7. It says, Their hands are on what is evil, to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. Get this, look at this, look at this picture. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright of them, a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman, of your punishment, has come, and now their confusion is at hand. Notice who it is in those verses that Micah points out. Notice who he's looking at. First of all, he calls out the prince. He says, look, the ruler is corrupt. And then he calls out these great men or these civic leaders, or we might even call them influencers. Even the influencers are so corrupt that that they're gaming the system for their own glory. And then he talks about the watchmen, the military, or those who are looking out, should be looking out for the good of the nation. 
even they have become corrupted. And it seems like Micah is saying that character counts and yet the numbers aren't adding up for these leaders. In fact, the the fact that the best of them is described as being briars, and I, I think that is a stinging indictment on this nation. And we could probably spend a great deal of time considering the grift, the corruption, the double standards, and the character of our own national leaders. For Micah, this was a heartbreaking situation. It was a reason for him to lament. And I wonder if it is for us. Are we electing leaders who will model the values that lead to a flourishing society? Are we grieved when our leaders game the system for their own gain? And I pray that we would lament and would expect more from our leaders. Israel and Judah, they needed more, and I believe the United States needs more from our leaders. But Micah also lamented because the corruption that was exhibited at the top resulted in the reality that the, so, the society itself could not be trusted. Stephen Um again suggests that the condition of the culture was tearing at the very fabric of what makes society work. The family relationships that should have provided confidence are undermined. The basic family units of his society had so fallen into disrepair that it was broken at its basic level. Look at verses 5 and 6. He says, Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. Micah posits his lament in the form of almost a practical application. I mean, look at what it says. He, he says, talks about neighbors. He says, those people who live closest to us, whose boundaries would be near ours, we should be able to trust that living next to someone would mean that there's some sense of safety there. And yet he's saying in that society, they couldn't, even be, they couldn't trust their neighbors. And then it gets even worse. He talks about their, the, the friends. He talks about people that should have our backs. He talks about those people that, that know our weaknesses and strengths. After all, part of what makes a good friend is that they will compensate or they will overlook our weaknesses. And they will respect or honor our strengths. And yet in Micah's culture, they were taking advantage of people's short, shortcomings. And they were hamstringing their strengths. Think about this. With friends like that, who needs enemies? So he's talking about neighbors. He's bringing the circle in a little closer. He's talking about friends, those people who should know us and love us well and protect us. And then he gets right to home. He talks about the family. Micah notes that from spouses to children to in-laws to housemates, he observed that no one could be trusted and he may be speaking in hyperbole, but there may be some truth to what he's observing. There's obviously some sort of truth in what he's observing. If everyone is out for their own good, then no one is looking out for the good of society and no one is looking out for the glory of God. The people of Israel at that time were called to a higher standard than what they were living up to. 
And I think for us, as people who have been called out from our sin by Jesus, we too are called to a higher standard. How are we doing? Do our neighbors appreciate that we reside next to them? Do they feel safe and secure knowing that we could be looking out for them, for their good, for their flourishing? Can our friends be trusted with our weaknesses? Can they trust us with their weaknesses? Or, or is there mutual exploiting going on? Can our friends trust us implicitly? Can our family members trust that we will support and encourage them? And I think what we need to recognize is that a culture works best when it works well at its most basic element, which is part of the reason why I think we should defend the rights of families, protect the sanctity of marriage, and I believe the biblical de definition of marriage. Our society needs to work at that basic level in order for it to work at any level at all. And if it's broken down here, it will eventually fall apart. And while all these are reasons that Micah laments, we could certainly reflect on more of these in our society. And Micah communicates for us that it is completely appropriate to also lament over the personal presence of sin. And while we are focusing on verses 1 to 7 this morning, there's a bit of the theme of lament that carries on into what we're going to look at next week. And in fact, down in verse 9, Micah says, I, I bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. Until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me, he will bring me out into the light and I will look upon his vindication. See, Micah's careful to admit that he's not perfect. He has his own flaws and shortcomings, and he admits that he is willing to be disciplined for his own failures. And he is not alone in his personal lament. In fact, the psalmist in Psalm 130 says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark my iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? In some ways, it's easy for us to look at the culture at large or look at each other and point fingers and say, oh, you've got that sin in your life. You better fix this. Oh, that culture that's doing bad out there. And yet, if we never look inwardly, forgetting that we also deserve discipline from the Lord, when we lament of our own sin and clearly recognize our own failures, we can then show a bit of grace and mercy to those around us. And while Micah demonstrates lament over public issues and even his own failures, we see elsewhere in Scripture laments for the painful circumstances of life. One commentator noted that roughly 40%, 60 out of the 150 psalms, are laments. And whether it's death or sin or war or sickness or national crisis or any number of personal trials that we may face, the psalmists model for us how to lament, how to pray from pain in a way that leads to trust. We've read a few of those Psalms. And so I want to share a little practical application. One of the guys I referenced before is a guy named Mark Brogop. 
And, and uh, he wrote a book entitled Dark Clouds and Deep Mercy, his personal journey of learning to lament. And, and he said in 2004, his wife was pregnant with their fourth child. They had had twins and they had one other one and now she was pregnant with number four, a daughter. And just a few days prior to the daughter's due date, the wife, his wife um, was up all night knowing that something wasn't right. She kept moving, feeling her abdomen, pushing, rolling over, trying to get the baby to do something. And she, she woke Mark up in the middle of the night and said, Mark, something's not right. And so they cried out to the Lord and prayed and finally made their way to the hospital, laid on that examining table, and the, and the technician had the ultrasound machine. And, and he, he said the, the technician couldn't say, but we knew. We weren't hearing it. All we heard was white noise. There was no heartbeat. They went home later that day, and, and Mark said he just cried out to the Lord. He said, God, why? Why would you allow us to do this just days away from Sylvia's birth? And then, as if adding insult to injury, Mark's wife, Sarah, had to endure the grueling pain of childbirth. She had to be induced to deliver Sylvia, knowing that Sylvia's eyes would never open. Her lungs would never take in air. Her voice would never cry out. And Mark stated that he learned in those days and weeks that followed to cry out to the Lord with great candor. He wasn't going to sugarcoat anything with the Lord. He learned that Scripture actually gave words to his emotions as he wrestled with God. And I think this is where it begins to get personal for us. We can look at culture. We can learn the things that Micah is getting at. But when, we, when it really hits home, we have to recognize that, that we can be grieved before the Lord. And lament helps us do that. It is God's ordained means of us expressing our frustration with life's circumstances. However, as I said before, there's something more than just crying out. Lament has a richness to it that's beyond just complaining, that's beyond just whining, that's beyond just throwing a temper tantrum. Because Micah helps us to see in verse 7 the resolve of lament, and that resolve is hope in God. We may cry out to God regarding the sin of our culture and the corruption of our leaders or the pain of our circumstances, but there is a sense in which lament leaves us to resolve, and we, that we resolve to hope in God. We resolve to continue to commune with God, to stay in a relationship with Him, to trust that He is sovereign and in control, even in the lack of control that this moment feels like right now. That God is aware of the pain, that God is aware of the sin, that God is aware of the crap of life. Micah 7, 7 says, But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Look at what Micah does because he turns his, his lament. He has all these things that he's crying out to God. And then with one little word, with that little word, but, he turns it and says, but 
I will hope in the Lord. And he does three things there. First of all, he looks to the Lord and he's not looking into himself. He knows that there's nothing there. He knows that he will fail if he is his only confidence. So he's looking to the Lord. He's certainly not looking to society because he's already complained that society is a mess. He recognizes that they seem to be working worse off than he is. And so he's lifting his gaze to the Lord. And there's a beautiful psalm of lament that, or psalm of ascent, Psalm 123, that notes this. Look at this language. It says, to you I lift up my eyes, you who are enthroned in the heavens. And then look at what he does with his eyes. Look at how he pays attention to what God, his master, is doing. Behold, as the eyes of of the servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. In our pain, are we looking to God? Are we lifting our spiritual eyes of hope to His divine plan, or are we looking at the temporary circumstances around us? See, things may not change immediately. Just because we're looking doesn't mean God's going to immediately bring resolution to something and fix what's broken. But, he's, but if we're looking to him, there is hope. And as a result of looking to the Lord, Micah demonstrates, secondly, how we can wait on God. We get to wait on God's perfect timing to bring salvation. We get to wait on his perfect timing to bring healing, to bring resolution, to bring forgiveness. I don't know if you guys are like this, but so often my knee-jerk reaction is to cry out to God and say, and, well, if I'm going to cry out to God, it's to beg for him to work. And then so often what happens is I say, God, please deal with this. And I say, never mind, God. I'm going to keep it myself, and I'm going to do this on my own. So often we, we, we want to say, God, we're going to trust you, but God, you're not fast enough. It has to be now, God. And yet Micah says, I look to the Lord, and I'm going to wait on God. Waiting on God requires humility. And I think Peter gives us a beautiful illustration and instruction in this in 1 Peter 5, 6-7, when he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Notice what that word casting implies. I mean, we use it in our society like we're casting a fishing line, right? But what happens with fishing lines? When we put it out there, we're bringing it back. But the biblical definition, the Greek definition of casting would be, I'm going to make a mess for a moment if that's okay. Sorry, let me get a scrap piece of paper. We'll be a bit more like, God, this is yours. It's out there. I can't reel it back. There's not a string on it for me to pull it. God, it's yours. And I'm going to wait until you do something with that. It takes humility to say, God, you're in charge. You're in charge. 
And while we're waiting, we get to express finally that the trust that God hears us. The trust that God hears us. Micah knows that God will hear us. He has walked with God enough to know that he is faithful even in the most daunting situations. And God will act in his perfect time. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. I know that it's not always, it may not always feel like our prayers are being heard, but we need to keep praying. Keep crying out, keep lamenting, keep talking to God. Stay in relationship with him even in the midst of the difficult circumstances of life. And if you feel like you don't have the words, if you feel like, God, I don't know what to say anymore, then open the Psalms. Look through some of the Psalms and begin to pray the Psalms. Say, for instance, I, I was even thinking this morning, you know, if, if we were to look at Psalm chapter 7, just very briefly, and you know, here's a Psalm in which David cries out to the Lord, because of someone who had spoken against him. He says, O oh Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. Imagine in the midst of circumstances where you've been betrayed at work, or where your family member is, is just has broken your trust, imagine sitting before the Lord and praying along with David. Oh, Lord God, oh, Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let my enemy pursue my soul and overtake it and let him trample my life to the ground. Arise, O oh Lord, The Psalms give us opportunity to pray before the Lord, to lift up our laments before Him. Now, let me just close briefly. I know that, you know, being Father's Day, we want to hear uplifting, cool, hey, go be a great dad, dad, right? I didn't, I didn't do a Mother's Day message either, so guys, I didn't want to leave us out. And I know that talking about lament on a day when we should be celebrating seems like something that there's just something out of whack with that. But yet at the same time, there is something in the good grace of God that as, as allows us as we systematically study his word to talk about things that scripture brings up in his good timing. We don't like to talk about lament, but the fact is that we are all going to suffer. And God gives us a means of dealing with that, of trusting him in the midst of those difficult circumstances. And I think one of the most beautiful ways that we get to see this idea of lament and hope work together is in our salvation. Because ultimately, if you look at it, we have to get to a point where we realize, we pay attention to the fact that we are not perfect. And that we have this sin problem that, that in humility we have to come before God and say, God, I know that I can't get past my sin problem. 
crying out to God and saying, please do something about it. And then recognizing, hearing his word, hearing his spirit respond, I already have, if you would just believe. You see, on the cross, Jesus Christ took all of our imperfections. He took all of our sin. He took the consequences and punishment that we deserve and placed them on himself. He gives us eternal life and eternal hope. He forgives all of our failings and invites us to walk with him. So I want to ask you, have you trusted in what Jesus did on the cross for you? Have you cried out to him? Have you looked to him for salvation? Have you waited on him to say, yes, come? Come. If you've not yet trusted Christ as your Savior, let's have a conversation about it. I'd love to open the word and talk to you about what it means to be a follower of Christ. Because it's more than just attending church. I'm glad you're here. But there's a, a step that you need to make, a response that you need to have. But I think for all of us, whether, whether you're a follower of Christ or you've been walking with God forever, for what feels like forever, in the difficult circumstances of life, let's learn to lament. It's okay to lament. It's real and right to lament, to cry out to God, and yet also trust that he is working in the midst of those situations. There are more than enough good reasons to lament. And yet in that, I think we need to resolve to walk with God, looking, waiting, trusting recognizing that God has given us each other as well. I mean, when you think about the people who are in this room, God has given us this gift of the church, that assembly of his people, if we will trust one another. The point is, you don't need to lament alone. You've got brothers and sisters who are willing to lament with you. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much for your word, even as difficult as this word is. Lord, we thank you for the example of Micah and just uh, what you've called, what you've given us in this gift of lament. Lord, help us in those difficult circumstances to cry out to you, to, to use your word even to bring language to the pain that you're allowing us to experience. But God, help us to turn that pain into trust. Help us to look to you, recognizing that you are sovereign over all of it. Help us to wait on you for your perfect time. Help us to trust that you hear us 